Mark 13 comes with a warning. Um, if you watch the news on television, it sometimes comes with a warning. Uh, this sermon comes with a warning, which goes something like this. This sermon contains the, ver- the sound equivalent of flash photography. And there may be people among us who find some of the images disturbing. Jesus understands that he's got two days to live. In three days' time he'll be dead. He'll be shut away in a grave. Chapter 13 begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving the temple. And uh, the first glimpse that we ever have that any of the disciples might have some kind of cultural awareness. Look at those great stones, this fantastic building. But they've just left the temple. Do you remember what John the Apostle said about Jesus? We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Perhaps he was referring his memory back to the transfiguration. But the glory of the living Father had been in that temple and been rejected. He was never returning to the the temple. He was going to be crucified. He had been rejected. The glory has departed. I can't begin to imagine what must have been going on in Christ. He's a real human being, like you and I are real human beings. What kind of tension, what kind of agony is going on? I think when we listen to his words here, we have to recognise that there is this deep, deep, broken-heartedness going on inside Christ. Because the Christ has come. The Christ has offered himself. The Christ is still going to offer himself. And he's been rejected. And the glory has departed from the temple. And when the glory has departed, then the place is just a facade. It cannot stand as an honour to God anymore. Its destruction is inevitable. It's a sham. So it comes as a bit of a shock when the disciples describing these wonderful stones, and they were wonderful stones. There's um, a description of them here. Not written by an eyewitness, I should say, but written by Alfred Edersheim, who was a Messianic Jew. And he says this, They were leaving the temple in the evening. The western sun was setting. Its beams would have poured across marble cloisters and on terraced courts and they'd have glittered on the golden spikes of the roof of the holy place. In this setting sun, the vast proportions and the symmetry of this temple which Herod had been building and had taken 46 years to be built, this symmetry and the sparkling sheen of a mass of snowy white and gold marble would have stood out in an incredible way. And then out across the valley of the Kidron, which they had to pass, and as they went up into, onto Mount Olivet, the, the huge dark shadows of this giant facade made up of stones, some of which were 24 feet long. The rabbis hated Herod, but 
Even their hatred of Herod couldn't take away their wonder at these buildings. They'd have loved the temple to be coated in gold, but in actual fact, it resolved, it was covered with this amazing marvel which resembled waves of the sea and seemed to them even more beautiful than gold would have been. Look at these stones, how wonderful they are. And a broken-hearted Christ knows that it's a sham. So it's a bit of a struggle when you first read it. Is this the first sign of negativity that we see in Jesus? The first, time, first sign of a put-down to his friends in a way which might be unkind? Look at these massive stones. Do you see all these buildings? There won't be one stone left on top of another. But then if you read through this chapter, as we read through it early on, you see that alongside with this breaking heart, there is such a passion for his own disciples. Did you notice how many times watch and guard yourselves came into this? John Lyons was here, he would say, will you remember all your underlinings next week? I put circles round the verses. Verse 5, watch that no one deceives you. Verse 13, all men will hate you, but stand firm to the end. Verse 23, be on your guard, I've told you everything in advance. Verse 32, be on guard, be alert. Verse 35, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house is coming back. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Don't you sense that coming through Jesus in this, in this moment of sort of personal agony, in a way, which is, precedes the ultimate agony on the cross, there is this such compassion and love and anxiety on behalf of his own disciples that nothing should carry them away because bad stuff is going to happen. And it's going to happen to him first. He doesn't escape. Now that's partly setting the scene. There are things about this chapter which I've really... I couldn't give you a chronology. Uh, has anybody watched um, Minority Report? Some of you have watched Minority Report. It's a bit like Minority Report in a way. There are flashbacks which come through the reference to past scriptures. And there's, there's looking into the future. And there's the present moment. And when you read through this chapter, you're never quite sure which part of the future you're looking at either. Are you looking at the immediate future? Are you looking at the long-term future? Sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes the two seem to be the same thing. It's like that with biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is a bit like a telescope that you put to your eye, and then it kind of unfolds, all these little bits open out, and it seems to stretch and stretch and stretch across the ages. So it's not easy to unravel some of this stuff.
One thing we can say is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for a really bad time. Now, this that I'm about to say is a bit of an excursus, really. I'm going on a detour and I'll come back, okay? When we read chapters like this, it often directs us, as it will do us later on, into the book of Revelation and back into Isaiah and things like that. And as we go on this excursion, we get stuck in things about theories of the end times. See, I'm still doing this detour. Theories of the end times. And people talk about millennia. (laughs) You know, post-millennia. If you're a new Christian, don't bother about this. If you're just discovering, I just shut off for a moment. I'll tell you when to come back. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, you will understand that over the centuries, Christians get stuck in whether, whether there's a, a millennium, which is pre, pre-Christ coming or, or whatever it is, or post-something, or there is, isn't one at all. I don't care who's right. I've come back. I've done my detour. I want you to know I don't care who's right. If it's pre-millennial, I'll be very happy because I'll be wrong. And I'll be safer than I imagined. But when I read these scriptures, and when I read Revelation, I don't have any sense that Christians are exempt from trouble upon this earth. And in my pastorate, all I want to do, God willing, God enabling, is to, is to build and to help a bunch of people who can go through the darkest and deepest of times and still stand firm for Jesus. Because Jesus went through the darkest and deepest times for you and me and he still stood firm on the cross for us. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Right to the end, when he shouted out in triumph, it is finished. And I want... God willing to have followers and to be the kind of follower that doesn't matter what happens, I can stand firm until the end. Whatever happens. Don't want to be a bunch in a a bunch of comfort lovers. I would love to be. I love my comforts. But I don't want to be in a bunch of people who just think, because everything is lucky and we happen to be born in Britain and we don't have the troubles that other people have and we've got a lovely building and we've got lots of money and uh, we've got all our supermarkets, we're fine. Jesus in the middle here says one thing which cannot be misunderstood. Heaven will pass away, but my words, he said, will not pass away. So what are his words? Well, he's telling us, first of all, that in this global universe that we inhabit, I don't know, can't find the right words, global is so common these days, this earth of ours, there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, don't we know it? And we know it now as no generation before us has ever known it. Because now we have global communication. And now we understand it while it's still happening thousands of miles away. Which we never used to know. These things, he says, must happen. I don't understand that. Why must they happen? These things must happen, he says. 
This is the globe we live upon, and this is the kind of people we are. Nations rise against nations. Kingdoms against kingdoms. If global warming is everything that people believe it is, things will get worse and there will be more wars and there will be more people movements and there will be more. And there will be struggles over water, there will be struggles over, over land, there will be struggles over food. These things are bound to happen, said Jesus. Sometime in the future, and that sounds very much like my future now, <laughs> Or my present now. But nobody knows the day or the hour. So you can disregard that if you want to. To these followers of his, he says that they will be arrested, flogged, killed. And we know definitely of the disciples that did happen. I'm not sure about John. I think John did not die as a martyr, though we know from the book of Revelation that he was arrested and put on a prison island for his faith. But all the other apostles did actually lose their lives, two of them at least in Rome, one of them in India, one of them I think was in Egypt. They went all over the place, across the river Indus, all over the place. And Fox's book Martyrs tells us that every one of them suffered and died for the faith, remaining faithful to the end. So as Jesus' words to them were specific and true, it happened. Here's a bit that I really don't like because I'm a Christian and I want my children all to become Christians, and none of them are at the moment. I don't want this to be true of my children. But brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. There's going to come a time when all men will hate you, says Jesus. I don't think that time's come yet. But I do feel that even in brilliant Britain, I'm proud to be a Brit. I'm grateful to be a Brit because of the privileges I've been born into. But I suspect that even here I'm living in an increasingly potentially hostile culture. But it hasn't come to me yet. It's just come to somebody who wears a cross, somebody who offers to pray for a patient in the hospital, somebody who wants to pray prayers before a council meeting. You hear what I'm saying? So Jesus is clearly speaking to these disciples about their own attitude and about things that they are going to face in their day shortly after his death. But Jesus doesn't just have the immediate in mind. He has got the ultimate in mind. Because towards the end of this chapter, he talks about the Son of Man appearing on the clouds. So he's speaking about a time far, we now know, to be far in the future, 
when Jesus, having been crucified, and having been raised from the dead, and having ascended to the Father, and having worked through his people so that the gospel is preached throughout the world, and having poured out his Holy Spirit on everybody who is willing to receive and and trust in Jesus, there's going to come a time when he will return in what he calls the Father's glory, with the angels of heaven. And it's at this point that he says, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. So here is what he's saying is a non-negotiable fact. Now then, if you believe that he really was crucified and raised from the dead, you cannot doubt that he knows what he's talking about. I don't understand this next bit. I think it might speak about when Jerusalem was sacked. But there is a reference back to Daniel here. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not long, let the belong, let the reader understand. I've often puzzled over that, let the reader understand, haven't you? And I'm not convinced I've sussed it now. But... 190 years previous to this, 168 BC, a Greek despot called Antiochus Epiphanes was one of many people during that time that conquered Israel. And he tried to set up the Greek worship in Israel and put an effigy of Jupiter on the Jewish altar in their temple. Now, the abomination that causes desolation is predicted by Daniel in three places. The most accessible reference, if you want to follow it up yourself, is Daniel 11.39. But let the reader understand, although the Jews considered that to be an abomination which caused desolation, Jesus is saying that was not it. It might be an example of what it might be, but that was not it. It is still to come. Some people say that in the AD 70, when Titus commanded Roman troops, which marched into Jerusalem and razed it to the ground, sort of affirming what Jesus had already declared in advance would happen, it was raised to the ground and the temple buildings were mutilated and, and put down. Some people say that the, the Roman standards were the abomination that causes desolation. But none of the things that go along with it in this word of Jesus accompanied that. So whatever it means, and I can't tell you, is yet to come. And it is spiritually abominable. And it has to do with rebellion against God. And it seems to be located in days which are end days.
I think two things telescope here. In the next passage when we're talking about uh, let no one... Am I getting it wrong, Lord? (laughs) The other way up. Use the lollipop. All those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, just giggle. Okay. I suspect that there's a telescoping of things here. That uh, there's both a reference to the time when when Jerusalem will fall. Let those who are on the rooftop and so on. Let those who are in the house. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be for those who are pregnant in those days. I suspect there's a reference there to the year 70 AD. But he then goes on to say that there would be such tribulation in those days, such tribulation as the world has never seen before, nor ever will see again. And again, I have to admit, I don't understand The tribulation which they will have experienced in Jerusalem was horrendous, but was it worse than the Holocaust? Or other things that are going on around the world? I just asked the question, and I always come up with this, it's yet to come. It's still to come in a global context. You're entitled to disagree with me. I'm just sharing with you as I see it. One of the reasons I see it that way is what follows next. In those days, following that distress, and then come these quotations from Isaiah. The sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. If you... Check out the references. He's quoting from Isaiah 13 and he's quoting from Isaiah 34. This is the point where you might find some images disturbing. First of all, from Isaiah chapter 13. verse 10 or verse 9 the day of the Lord is coming it's a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it the stars of heaven and their constellations won't show their light the rising sun will be darkened the moon won't give its light I will punish the world for its evil the wicked for their sins I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the youth the the pride of the ruthless. I don't like reading that stuff. But if you check it out, it's a prophecy about the fall of Babylon. And the fall of Babylon happened when invading armies ransacked it 
and did that to Babylon. The other reference to stars falling, Isaiah chapter 33, comes in verse 4. Again, I don't like reading this. Lord, be gracious to us, we long for you, but our strength, be our strength every morning, our salvation in the time of distress. At the thunder of your voice the people flee. When you rise up the nations scatter. You plunder, your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts, like swarm of locusts. Yeah, it's 34, I'm reading the wrong one, aren't I? But God bless you for being on the, on the ball. Um, that was Pete. Um, those of you listening to the podcast, credits for this go to Pete. All the stars of the heaven will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, see it descends in judgment and so on. This prophecy is addressed to all nations. So Jesus is speaking here about some end time when there will be terrible tribulation after which there will be judgment upon the nations similar to the judgment that came upon Babylon. If you step forward into Revelation chapter 18 and I'm really scared about preaching from Revelation, I tell you. But chapter 18 is one of those chapters which I think, even though it's full of imagery, can be understood very plainly as being about global economic disaster. And it's speaking about the global system which has caused it. And that global system, we go back to Babylon, is called Babylon. In the imagery of the chapter, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood and so on. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off terrified at her torment. Now then, as I see it, the the system which governs the way nations interact is increasingly the economic systems faith in mammon which as we saw the other week is upside down and Jesus is talking about a time when the global situation will perish because of its false gods which bring tribulation and despair. Am I making sense? And this has never been possible in the world in the, like, in the way that it is in our present day. Because when I was a child, 
My father worked, I think it was a company called Telcon, and he worked in Greenwich in London. And on Saturdays, sometimes I went to work with him, and he showed me the big ship that one day was going to lay, lay the first transatlantic telephone cable. And I had a bit of that cable. But now look, we're getting daily pitches from Syria and Egypt and all over the world. And social media and satellites, it's become a global system, global economic system, global political interaction, just about global everything. So all I'm saying is the things that are being described here haven't been possible until our present day in the way that they now are. Nobody knows the day nor the hour, so I hope this church lives another 400 years. But <laughs> I hear myself say, but... Lord, make me the man that can live through the worst of times, even if you're pleased to give me the best of times. And throughout this passage, we hear Jesus virtually pleading with his disciples. The book of Revelation, here he says, be alert, be on your guard. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Standing firm, you can stand firm in a buffeting wind. You can be blown about in a wind, but still stand firm in your inner convictions and in your presentation of those convictions to others. Jesus tells us to stand firm. The book of Revelation uses a different word. The word in the book of Revelation which keeps cropping up is he who overcomes to the end. And standing firm and overcoming have slightly different nuances, don't they? Standing firm is not giving way. Overcoming is being positive and saying, no, I'm not going to let you have your way with me. I could preach a sermon on what the verse I'm about to read. I promise you I'm not going to. I'm going to give it to you to think about. And if you want to come back and talk about it afterwards, that's fine. This is how John says people stand firm under great tribulation. They overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, and wait for it, they did not love their lives unto death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now again and again Jesus says, be on your guard, be ready, watch, stand firm. We have the promise of his spirit. We have the fruit of his sufferings. The fruit of his sufferings, that blood, this is, could become the sermon I promised you I wouldn't preach. But his blood 
the sacrifice he's made assures us of the eternal love of God our Father, doesn't it? Doesn't it assure you that you are as precious to God as his son is? Because he gave his son for you. And that you're as precious to the Saviour as God the Father finds you precious. Because the Son agreed to die for you. Doesn't that blood cover your sins and wash away your guilt and clothe you in God's righteousness and assure you of a hope in his presence? In the midst of whatever comes, that is our assurance, isn't it? Doesn't he love us? Isn't he for us? Hasn't he promised his his Holy Spirit in the darkest, darkest of hours? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, he says through the writer to the Hebrews. But he says, be alert, be on your guard, stand firm. And I suppose we could leave it there then. Please stand. Thank you. This is not a fire alarm. It is a sermon illustration. Nobody knows the day nor the hour.